We're in Acts 14, 8 through 28. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking, and Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw that Paul, what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying, in Lyconian, the gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifices with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also, men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained themselves uh, from offering sacrifice to them. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose and entered the city. And on the next day, he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they preached the gospel to that city and made many disciples into Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every city with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Anatalia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that they had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they they declared all that God had done with them, how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And they remained no little time with the disciples. All right. So today, as I said earlier, um, we're going to start this by going backwards to Acts 13 to kind of give us some context. The beginning of Acts 13, Paul and Barnabas and disciples were sent out, commissioned by the church, to go into the area of modern-day Turkey. And today is the conclusion of that missionary journey. Today is an action-packed text. There was a lot of drama. There is healing idolatrous people ignoring Paul's appeal to turn to the true God, extreme suffering at the hands of the Jews on Paul, a total commitment by Paul to continue to preach the gospel, appointing elders to establish the church in the areas they ministered, and ultimately, Paul's efforts proved successful with God's blessing. I have called today's sermon True Grit. I think it should be called The Few the Proud in the Marines, because Paul, Paul is a trooper. I love the movie True Grit also, so I thought it was a cool title. But when I got down to it in my study of 
this passage, I think there was a very, very simple meaning behind what is going on. And it's very applicable to us. And it's a hard topic. The message is so simple. It's be faithful to share the gospel. That's it. This morning, we're going to take it a little farther than that, though. How do we, sharing the gospel today in the 21st century in 2022, we're going to go there a little bit more specifically in the central part of our text. I got to be honest with you guys, I'm not a master evangelism, so this sermon challenges me too. I don't mean to make it sound like I'm some master at this. It's hard. It's inconvenient. I think the Great Commission that Jesus refers to, I, sometimes I feel like I'd rather it not be there because it's just so uncomfortable. I'd rather just know the Lord and go on with my life and not have to worry about sharing it with other people. And I think maybe there's some folks in here that feel the same way. But we can't bury our head in the sand and pretend that it's not there. The whole of Scripture is an evangelism mission, if you really think about it. If you take that message of God pursuing his people and having a relationship with them, there's really nothing left. And so God calls us to be a reflection of that in our world. And that's really what I think this text is about. There's so many things to extrapolate from it too, though. All right. So let's, we're going to start by moving backwards two verses to kind of give us even more context. Let's see, where are we? Five and seven. When an attempt was made by both Jews and Gentiles with their rulers to mistreat them and stone them, being Paul and Barnabas, they learned of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Lyconia, and to the surrounding country. And there they continued to preach the gospel. If this morning were a car, I think the engine that would be running it is the fact that Paul is preaching the gospel. And it sets the stage for the events that transpire. Sure, God can do anything, but I think in this text, if Paul is not so obedient and stick to preaching the gospel, the events don't transpire. You know, I think when we throw around the word gospel, which we do a lot, I think it's important to pause and say, what is the gospel? I was surprised to learn in my research that I opened up this theology book, fine print, page after page after page under what the gospel is. When we communicate the gospel, it should be a clear message that is easily communicated Romans 5.8 tells us, um, actually, backing up, the gospel means good news. Literally, it means good news. And if there is good news, there has to be bad news. That would imply that. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Here, death means an eternal death, an eternal separation from God. That is bad news. What these verses are saying is, is on my own, I am destined to go to hell because I have failed God's standard. The good news is Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. John 5.24, truly I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. Without the resurrection of Jesus Christ as well, there is no way that any of this even matters either. If Jesus doesn't come back to life, it's just a good man laying his down his life for some people. And certainly that takes place in the military realm. People die and they sacrifice, they pay the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus is beyond that. He was God and he rose from the dead. In that, he lived a perfect life, was perfectly, fully God and fully man, and paid that sacrifice for us. So, back to our text. Let's just keep that in mind when we hear the gospel. I remember reading a passage from a church website that said, that explained what the gospel was. The gospel is... Task 1, task 2, task 3, task 4, task 5. And it had these very spiritually sounding things. And when you read it, you go, wait a minute. The gospel isn't that. That's not good news. That's a list of tasks I have to do. And I think the church at large can throw around the gospel without remembering what it really is. It's the message of Jesus Christ came and paid the price. All right, Roman, uh, Acts fourteen eight through 10. Now at Lystra, there was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul, looking intently at him, and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, stand up. And he sprang up and began walking. So they're in Lystra. A city in Anatolia in modern Turkey, Lyconia was a Roman province in south-central Asia Minor. The area of Lyconia was considered remote, so the people of Lyconia were politically independent from Rome. Lystra was built on a small hill above the plain that stretched northeastward to Iconium and southeastward toward Derby. Lystra was mainly populated by Gentiles and likely had no synagogue. And we're going to see something peculiar in Lystra. There was a temple devoted to the god of Zeus. And there's a priest in, the, in that town that lives, presumably lives in the temple, or hangs out at the temple at the very least of Zeus. The priest of Zeus comes. We'll see that. But for the healing that takes place, what do you think the man was hearing from Paul? He was hearing the gospel, right? According to 5 and 7, Paul is bringing the gospel to this area. 
And Paul continues and he speaks loudly to the man, stand up. I don't know about you, but I think for somebody who has never walked before, the call to stand up could be, is an act of great courage. And in faith, he obeys Paul's command to stand up. He has faith that God's power is actually going to come through. And don't miss the significance of that. Anytime that I have ever read a a miracle that Jesus did, I cannot recall a single time where Jesus doesn't refer to faith in there somehow. The man displays extreme faith in God that he will stand because it would be incredibly humiliating for him to stand and fall. Having true faith isn't just an intellectual process. It requires a response from us. And true faith should continue to bear fruit in our lives, not with a mindset of earning faith and a condition for God to continue to love us, but God calls us to continue to respond and live a lifestyle of response to him. And I think what's really in view this morning is responding in faith to obedience to share the gospel. And that's, I think, where a lot of us really struggle. Moving now to Acts 14, 11 through 18, this is going to be where we're going to spend a lot of time. And I can't wait to share some of these things with you. Uh, let's read it. And when the crowd saw that Peter had done, they lifted their voices, saying in Lyconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance of the city, brought oxens, oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you. And we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations he allowed nations to walk in their own ways, yet he did not leave himself Without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with good food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrain the people from offering sacrifice to them. In the ancient world, it is not uncommon to mistake impressive humans for gods. According to Homer's Odyssey and this guy named Bacchus, it was immortal. It was a huge mistake to make the mistake of falsely attributing a human to be a god and vice versa. So there's an incredible amount of energy on the part of the people to respond to this event. And they're just, it's almost comical. They're just, they're just so blind to what Paul is saying. It's going one ear out the other. And It just goes to show you that idolatry in Scripture is a humongous deal. The whole of the Old Testament has a tremendous amount to say about idolatry. Honestly, in my own life, idolatry has been a huge issue, and it's taken various forms. And I've had to wrestle and and ask the Lord to help me a lot. And, you know, 
it's not something that we should take lightly because we're prone to have idols, especially in the plenty that we live in. We're in the land of plenty, (laughs) when extremely so. There is so much to take comfort in and to enjoy in place of God that we have to be on guard. Am I taking too much pleasure and joy in this thing and that thing? Am I finding my identity in this thing or that thing? And we have to be careful not to be blinded by idolatry, as these people so are. And turning to Paul, Paul in this story could have enjoyed the worship for himself a little bit. He could have said, yeah, I am a God. Bring your oxen to me and I will enjoy uh, I will enjoy a great meal. I will take your money and in your women and I'll take off whatever. He doesn't do that. He points them back to truth and he sees where they're at and he responds to that. I don't think it's above even Christian leaders today to deny deity for themselves in a way. I think Christian leaders today have to be on guard too to not take credit. And Paul himself, what is remarkable is that he says, I am a human. It's honestly, when I study this story, part of me wants to worship Paul (laughs) because he's so obedient. He's like a terminator for the Lord. He just, he just keeps going. And, but Paul says, no, what does he do? Paul responds and he says, he appeals to them where they're at. He appeals to God's goodness. I recall a conversation with a campus pastor at the Evergreen State College. And he said there would be these people that would descend onto the campus and they were Christians, I mean, supposed Christians. And they would just cause havoc. They would bring signs that said, you know, sinners in the hand of a living God, or or they would say, you're going to hell, or they would say things like, you know, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. And he confided in me, and he would say, they, they just wreck the effort that I work so desperately hard to do each year. And they just, they reaffirm the stereotype of what a Christian really is. Romans 2.4 says this, Or do you disregard the riches of his kindness, tolerance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness leads you to repentance? James 1.17, For every good and perfect gift comes from above. Are you enjoying your life? You should thank the Lord. Do you have food on the table? You should thank the Lord whether you know him or not. He's saying that to them. We can also see Paul is gently challenging them in Acts 14, 15. You should turn from these vain things to a living God. The gods that you're serving are alive. In our late modern time, we need to speak to where people are at when it comes to sharing the gospel, just like Paul is with the people at Lystra. In the age of COVID, especially, we're a culture starved for friendship, I think. 
I am persuaded personally that in the day and age we live, friendship should be our primary means to reach people with the gospel. In Will McRaney's book, The Art of Personal Evangelism, he says this, A significant part of evangelism in a postmodern context is building credible relationships with those to whom we are attempting to communicate the message of Christ. This involves building bridges, befriending lost people, and living a credible life. We do not live in a society that places a high value on community concerns. We have elevated individualism to our own detriment. We no longer live in an environment where people walk many places that they travel. People are more on the move most of the time. Trying to connect with people is not an easy thing to do. Maintaining connections is even harder. Donald McGavern, the father of the modern church movement, said that the gospel travels along networks of relationships. Christians will intentionally have to engage those who are presently outside the family of God. We have to go to them, not wait for them to come to us. The Christian message has the church going into the world of lost people from which we also came. Be a safe person with a dangerous message. Jesus was a friend of sinners. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say here is a glutton and a drunkard. He was accused of that. But wisdom is proved right by her actions, according to Matthew eleven nineteen. Andy Stanley says mostly most active, highly most highly active church members, including pastors, have few meaningful relationships with lost people. It is easy to say we love the world. Loving an individual is more difficult. For us to be effective in evangelism, we must learn to love people who do things that might offend us. For the sake of the gospel, find some unlovely person and love him anyway. What's your takeaway there? I love this quote, short quote by John Maxwell. Walk slowly through the crowd. And I think what that means is, is we don't just think of going into the store, right, and saying, I got to get eggs and bacon. We walk slowly. We look people in the eye. And we get to know somebody's name. And then maybe a few weeks later, it leads to more talking. A few weeks later, it leads to more talking. A few weeks later, you're sharing the gospel. I really believe that in our setting today, relationships are everything. Dale Carnegie's book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, gives some great insight. He's got a list of ten things, suggestions for connecting with people. Don't criticize, condemn, or complain. Give honest, sincere appreciation. Arouse in others an eager want. Become genuinely interested in other people. Smile. 
Remember that a person's name is to that person the sweetest and most important sound in any language. Be a good listener. Encourage others to talk about themselves. Talk in terms of the other person's person's interest. Make the other person feel important and do it sincerely. Of course, making friends is not enough. Jesus never calls us to just make friends and not share the gospel. Conversely, he doesn't call us to friendship and then just be like, oh, you don't like the gospel, you're dead to me. Another suggestion is to ask questions. Do you have spiritual beliefs? Do you think Hitler's in hell? Shock him. Say something that gets their attention. I'll never forget one afternoon, my coworker, it was dead as a doornail, and we were just sitting there until 5 o'clock rolled around. And he goes, Scott, do you believe in hell? And I just about choked on my coffee. People are curious. They are curious about many things when it comes to the Christian faith. Questions such as, why are Christians so intolerant? Why does God allow evil? Why would we believe a book by dead Jewish men? Why are Christians homophobic? What's so good about marriage? There are strong biblical responses to all of these. And they're at our fingertips. And we should have them on our minds. And these thoughts are just the tip of the iceberg. We could go on for days and days about reaching people in, in ways that we, we could do it. Moving on, Acts fourteen nineteen. what do we got? Through 20. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. When the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. Paul is stoned to the point of being presumed dead. Don't miss the extreme nature of what's going on. The punishment is severe, and God actually completely allows it. He could completely stop it from happening. I, a few months ago, or last year, I reflected on the early church, and Rome was celebrating its 1,000th anniversary. And the church was, I think, if I remember, 100 or 200 years old. And what ended up happening was the Christians were asked, you know, bow your knee and worship Caesar. This was totally nationalistic. A drive to celebrate Rome being 1,000 years old. Worship Caesar. A funny thing happened, a very sad thing. Unfortunately, most of the Christians 
that at that time actually bowed to Caesar to in worship. We don't know what's around the corner. We don't want to think about that kind of persecution. And we're certainly not there. And we have tremendous religious freedom still. But a time could come when we're faced with very dire choices. You just don't know. And God may just allow it. We don't live for this life as believers. We live for the next one. In God's eyes, he's taking care of us because he will take care of us in the next life. He, The blessings will be tremendous. We can't even fathom. It's not about the here and now. It's not about, it isn't about your best life now. It's not. Paul's obedient lifestyle earned him some trouble. What is motivating the Jews to travel? The Jews are traveling. I mean, they really got a gripe against him. What's going on? One quote from Origen, an early church father, says, The Jews even now are not angry at the heathen who worship idols and blaspheme God. They do not hate them, but they attack the Messianists with insatiable hatred. There, there could be a rousing up against us. <laughs> and I think one thing that could prevent that is sharing the gospel if more people know and believe, they're going to be won over by our love for them. Jews and Christians were competing for followers was one thing. And the political climate in our country now is so uh, intense and we don't know what's around the corner, but the political climate, there was a political climate with the Jews and Christians at this time. And it was hard. And it brought suffering and pain for, for believers. All right, moving on. Acts 14.21. When they had preached the gospel of that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium. Regardless of the suffering that Paul endured, it's very encouraging to see that many disciples were made. Acts 14.22, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in their faith and saying that through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. Verse 23, and when they had appointed the elders from them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Note the concern and commitment by Paul and Barnabas with prayer and fasting to establish the church with elders. In view of this, I reflect on 1 Timothy 1.7, which says an elder must have a good reputation with outsiders. When it comes to our passage today, I'd like to challenge all of us, have a good reputation with outsiders. Challenge yourself to do that. 
And that's really what we're talking about. Acts 14, 24 through 28. They had passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. And when they had spoken the word in Perga, they went down to Italia. And from there they sailed to Antioch, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work that he had fulfilled. And when they arrived and gathered the church together, they, they declared all that God had done with them. And how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. And when they remained no little time with the disciples. All of this fulfilling the Great Commission and sharing our faith. It is all supposed to be in the context of church. The P, these workers, Paul and Barnabas and the disciples, were sent out by the church. And now they've concluded with the church. And they spend time together. They're celebrating what happened. And it just kind of, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking to myself, you know, in my Christian experience, I've asked people to hold me accountable with this thing or that thing. It's never really occurred to me to open up to somebody and say, I'm really having trouble sharing my faith could you hold me accountable to do that? Is there anything more important than this topic to want to be held accountable for? Is there anything more important in the church than sharing our faith? Maybe in our small groups that are going to start in a month or so, maybe small group leaders can step out and incorporate that. And talk about people that we want to reach and people that we know that need to know the Lord. We need to share our faith with. That we need to become friends with. You know, a few months ago I was at, out to lunch with somebody. And we were talking and there were these two guys that were just over there kind of being loud. They were young and and they were talking about just like cussing and they were just carrying on. And in my head, I was judging them. I almost was like thinking about saying, could you guys be quiet? I'm trying to talk to my friend. But instead, I don't know what came over me, my conviction from the Holy Spirit or what. I decided that instead of judging them, that I would choose to buy their lunch. And thankfully, the, the server came out at the same time with both our checks, and I said, can I buy your lunch? And they were blown away. And it was at this moment that I was really, I really had to buckle down and say, I am going to be obedient in this moment. I turned to them and I said, I am buying this lunch for you because Jesus loves you. And they were just, they couldn't believe that I was doing it. The server couldn't believe that this was happening. I didn't completely share the gospel. I understand that. But more interactions like this can and should take place in our lives. When more people buy people, more Christians act out in love like that and do acts of service in the community 
in the name of Jesus, the tide can turn. It's sort of like a farmer throwing seeds out. And scripture is filled with that analogy of of throwing seeds out. And for us, I think there's times to do that. And then there's times to get more explicit with the gospel and say, no, I want to get to the nitty gritty. I want to talk to you about the gospel, what it really is. What do you believe? Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in him? And I'm turning now to ask you that. Have you put your faith and trust in the one who resurrected and he has the power to forgive your sin and he came on God's behalf? Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let's not be ashamed. Let's go into the world with our eyes open, moving slowly through the crowd, engaging people in friendship, and with the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I just thank you for this time to look at your word to be inspired and to look to Paul as a great example for us of obedience no matter what. I pray, Lord, that we would, this would become more part of our lives and our lifestyle, sharing the gospel, making friends who may be much different than us, who we don't agree with, their lifestyle. We don't agree with things about them. May we be guilty of befriending these people, loving them. Help us be attached and constantly in the word of God. Fill us with your spirit. Give us the joy that we need grabbed people's attention, the joy in you and the joy of knowing you. And it is a joy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.